0: and welcome to inkstained wretches where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the american news media. Eliana is away from us on what i assume is a fact-finding trip to a chinese sweatshop somewhere to purchase designer handbags. So you say, who could you get in eliana's absence that would be excellent, that would be learned but funny, but most importantly, a deeply inkstained wretch, someone who has worked from the local, the international, the national from highbrow to lowbrow, everything in between, who has run papers, who has worked at papers, Kevin Williamson. He is my colleague at the dispatch. He is a, a a man of virtue, a man of letters who has not ever lost the sensibility of his native Texas or the newsroom. Kevin Williamson, thank you for doing this. Thanks. I'm kind of a weird person to choose to fill in for Eliana in most contexts, I would yes. think, but I yes. have actually literally handled ink professionally, so I think that I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. In what job did you handle ink professionally? I was substituting in on a press crew one night, so I, I worked as a composing room foreman for a year. Did you? my college career, and occasionally I would help with the press stuff, yeah. Oh, I loved the composing room. I loved going across, there was a, before pagination ruled the world, there was a little bridge across an alley in the back of the newspaper where I started in West Virginia, and if you were very lucky, you could go over to the composing room, which smelled like cigarette smoke and uh, hot wax, and they were pounding out the the metal sheets that were used to put on the presses, and it, if you'll allow me to be silly, I think that the loss of the physical connection to the industry of printing with journalism was a big part of how things got weird right that dis- the the disconnection of those two things and also shipping them out is or maybe better to say that those things helped keep us connected when we were actually printing something yeah i think there was i mean there was a different rhythm to the news when you actually have to print and distribute a uh, newspaper so there's you know some time to kind of think between when you finish up one cycle and uh, you start the next one, even if it's only between three o'clock in the morning and seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I think I, I guess I was working for a journal register company. It was probably the first time I worked in a place where we didn't actually literally have a press in the building. And so we had a sort of central printing facility that handled a bunch of our newspapers. And it did feel like something was missing. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I used to make plates to go on the press and, and that stuff. That was part of my my job. I've done pretty much everything except work on the sports page. Will, will you, even though I know you do not like to talk about yourself, mm-hmm. will you take our listeners through a, a quick tour to Williamson about how you got in the business and where you worked? Yeah. So I started in journalism because I don't have any useful skills <laughs> and just I had to find some way to make a living. And I kind of liked writing. So no, I started writing for newspapers, I guess, while I was still in high school a little bit. And then there was, you know, high school newspaper, college newspaper. I was very lucky in that we're going to get to a college newspaper story later in the in the episode, I think. But I went to the University of Texas where in the 90s, it was a great place to be if you were looking to go into newspapers because the Daily Texan school newspaper there was at that time, I want to say, was the eighth largest daily newspaper in Texas. But a huge press run for a college newspaper, you know, 50,000 or so, something like that. When I was the managing editor there and I was a youngster, I had 121 employees and a budget of two and a half million dollars. And I don't think I've had a budget that big since, probably. Um, so that's how I kind of really got started in newspapers. From there, I went to India. I worked for the Indian Express newspaper group. Um, I came back. I worked at various kind of small town newspapers in Texas and suburban newspapers outside of Philadelphia. Um, I was part of a very, very deeply ill-informed and badly thought out effort to Revived the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin as a daily newspaper uh, at one point, which was a lot of fun to do, but obviously was not a very good business proposition. That lasted about five years. Whence followed a period of unemployment and <laughs> National Review. Kind of after that, after a little stop in the uh, think tank world, and uh, National Review, and and now the Dispatch, and uh, author of great books and a book that I love. I don't know if it's your favorite book that, but. The, the smallest minority in your book about twitter and social media and how it affects the way that we understand the news how we understand each other is and i i say it often about you the highest compliment that one writer can pay to another is is the is the crippling jealousy that <laughs> one feels when you read another's work and say damn i wish i had written that and i i get to do that with you on a weekly basis so i am so Proud and pleased to be your colleague, and so grateful that you would be with us today. Yeah, that book is a good example of why I I don't have like a private jet and stuff because <laughs> it's a it's a book about social media and you know, it's kind of rage culture and all that. And the the middle part of the book is about essentially why why Milton Satan is more interesting than Dante's and, uh, I, and a more useful character. I, I wrote I wrote a book about the media that includes a lengthy meditation on what literacy means and an extended analogy about Robert Frost stopping in the wood, stopping by the wood on a snowy evening. So I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. I always Uh, say I'm only one book away from having that private jet, but unfortunately that book is Harry Potter and the philosopher's stone. And someone's already written (laughs) it. Could be, Uh, I think if you, Oh, the other thing before I stop praising you and let you return to a comfortable space, your work on, you're not an Appalachian, you're a redneck, not a hillbilly. But I, as an emissary of the Hillbilly Tribe, say that your work on Big White Ghetto and your time spent in Appalachia was the most useful, most instructive coverage of Appalachia, poor white voters, white working class voters, and the the issues that beset them and what's going on. It didn't have an ounce of pity in it. And I mean that in the most positive way. There was no hillbillies in the mist. there was no oh these these poor souls, you treated them with real humanity and compassion, and it was really, really good. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. That's probably my my favorite out of the the stuff I've done. It is that kind of broader body of work you you when you paint the picture of the cases of mountain dew stacked up on the front porch of a rotting general store in a holler somewhere, I said, He's been to the fair and he's seen the elephant. That's that, that, th- this is correct. Yeah. For people who don't know this story, I mean, one of the most interesting little kind of things I discovered was, in this case it was Pepsi, not Mountain Dew, but that it's used as currency. Yeah. People buy cases of soda with their food stamp benefits, and then you can trade it. You can either sell it back for cash for 50 cents on the dollar, or people just actively trade it. So you can trade it for drugs, so you can trade it apparently for prostitution. You can just make various kinds of payments in cases of soda. And so it's like, I call it hillbilly wampum. And it's a, it's a weird little thing. I don't want to go off on a whole lecture here, but I have this whole thing about how to improve the welfare state, which is just give people money. Yeah. You know, if there are people who, who need to be helped, fine, just give them money. All the stuff we try to do to take agency away from people and make sure that they don't spend money on things we don't want them to spend money on, all ends up being subverted and it just adds cost and hassle and friction to the system. And invites corruption. So. Yes. Encur- en- en- encourage, encourages illegality. And yeah. the, the comparison that came to mind for me when, you, when I read what you wrote was about the whiskey rebellion. And the reason for the whiskey rebellion in Western Pennsylvania was that hillbillies were using whiskey for currency, right? Yep. It wasn't that they were concerned about, I mean, I'm sure they were concerned about the price of whiskey, but it basically functioned as a tax on money. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you grew corn, well, in in those days it would have been a lot of rye. If you if you grow grain, you can't store it. You convert it into whiskey, and then it's a com- then it's a standardized commodity that you can trade with. And a tax on that was what led to the whiskey rebellion. And uh, the the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to our front page. and sadly there is there is no escape from the story the the press the press is, is utterly consumed maybe rightly to some large degree with the most recent indictments of the former president donald trump this time in georgia and i was sitting in in front of a camera in chicago this week and in the news nation headquarters up on the wall they have all these big monitors of course showing in the newsroom what what's on everywhere so that you, you're not missing a story and all of that stuff and on the msnbc mod- monitor and i we were there cuz we had a town hall with vivek ramaswamy or as i now call him vivek ramney swamy <laughs> i looked and saw this lower third the graphic at the bottom of the screen on msnbc and it said this Trump indictments spark threats of civil war and it for me Kevin encapsulated the the thirst the lust for civil war for armed conflict the the desire for this to happen i looked around to see who was threatening civil war and it wasn't Kevin McCarthy right it wasn't like some elected official somewhere it was goobers on the internet being gooberish and this sort of disaster porn and desire, of course, suits perfectly the MSNBC audience that, that, likes, that likes the thought of being the good, uh, the good guys. They want to be Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain in uh, this coming Civil War. But it struck me as, especially at a time when you have a big breaking news story, as particularly irresponsible. Yeah, the eagerness to see violence or threats of violence or or this kind of public conflict is really palpable, I think. you know on the left, and sometimes you get people who want it for their own sake. You know, you're know, sort of Antifa types who are you know, ready to allegedly ready to go out and rumble in the street, although not really so much. You know, I, I, I covered a, a thing in, in Portland a couple of years ago, this big Antifa thing. And one of the things I've noticed between them and the Proud Boys and all the rest of it is that... People who talk the most about you know their 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 eagerness for violence are people who pretty clearly never been in a fight and probably aren't aren't going to but but never mind never mind that for the moment but mostly the left isn't looking for it because they want to go out and, and brawl on the streets themselves they want to have something to react to and say look at these people look at these republicans what a bunch of animals they are and how they're interested in political violence and all the rest of it and unfortunately republicans at least some of them are all too happy to oblige and give them anecdotes and evidence for their, for their proposition. So a lot of this is, you know, big talk on Facebook and whatnot. We'll get that, to that later with one of the items as well. But some of it is people who actually, you know, really are contemplating this in a, in a serious way, either, you know, dealing with what they expect to be political violence or planning to perpetrate it. And I think that hyping it up for partisan political purposes makes the threat worse rather than better because you're not going to embarrass Republicans out of being idiots. We, we've, we, we, we've watched people try that for a long, long time now. They're just not embarrassable people. Kevin McCarthy is not a man who can be embarrassed. Vivek Ramaswamy is not a man who can be embarrassed, I think. But you know, the, the, the bigger a deal you make out of it, the more you exaggerate it, the more you inflate it, you know, it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're not to go on a completely idiotic literary tangent here, but I, I sometimes think of the Umberto Eco novel, Foucault's Pendulum, which is about these guys who are into conspiracy theories as a hobby. They don't believe in any of them. Yes. I and mean, they are they're also publishers. And in the course of hyping up this fictitious conspiracy they've dreamed up, they accidentally bring one to life. Yes. And it ends up becoming you know, a real world thing. There's a bit of that, I think, in, in cable news. And yes. kind of internet oriented commentary. Uh, the Umberto Eco reference immediately puts you in the Inkstand Wretches Hall of Fame. Right there. There you go. For... for First time ever. Uh, All right. So in the same man of people, Chris, that's right. That's right. In the same vein, Washington Post headline, Trump insults D.C. to get his trial moved. The city rolls its eyes. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I'm going to read you just a little bit of this beauty. The dark imagery invoked by Donald Trump during his brief visit to the nation's capital last week, the filth and the decay, broken buildings. Renewed the stereotype of collapsing American cities as a means of calling for his federal indictment to be moved out of the district. It also reignited his hostile relationship with the city he said needed to be taken over by the federal government when he occupied the White House. And what follows is a very sort of predictable, you know, Trump hates D.C. D.C. doesn't care. But mm-hmm. as is often the Look case. Look at all of our lo- lovely farm-to-table restaurants. Exa- exactly, exactly. There's going to be a get, get ready for the Corgi costume uh, parade that will be taking place at the waterfront. But very, very revealing. That's one of those things that I can't tell if you're making it up or not. And um, oh, either, if, either way, it would surprise me. Oh, if there's not, I, I don't, I've never been to it, but if there is not a Corgi costume event, at least annually in the District of Columbia, as I sit here one block away from uh, Eastern Market, I, 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 will, I will eat all of the artisanal arugula on sale. Okay, the former president also falsely claimed that homicides in D.C. just shattered the all-time record and other violent crimes have never been worse. What follows this, par- this paragraph is just high-fiving 10,000 angels. D.C.'s downtown is still rebounding from the pandemic and it has been a violent year in the city. August has so far been a particularly brutal month for killing, and the homicide total this year is on pace to top last year's total of 203. Councilmember Trayon White, senior Democrat from Ward 8, while not directly addressing Trump's <laughs> statement, said this week that the National Guard was needed to reduce crimes. Desperate times call for desperate measures, he said. But Trump's claim of a record shatter of a, rec- a record being shattered is untrue. D.C. recorded at least 360 homicides every year from 98 to 96, far above the current pace, a time when the city had a smaller population. And Mm. as an editor, I think if somebody pitches me this story and it comes over and it has this paragraph in it, I think I'm going to say these paragraphs in it, I'm going to say maybe we need a different take. Maybe, maybe if we're saying, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, murders are way up, but it's not as bad as it was 30 years ago. And yeah, the one guy said he wanted the, the one city government official wants the National Guard mobilized, but calling for a federal takeover is wrong. This was uh, a a lovely encapsulation for me. Yeah. You know, the, the city Trump is describing is, is St. Louis really more than it is. D.C. I mean, DC sucks, but DC sucks for other reasons, right? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it well, it's it's a company town. Yep. And, you know, part of what's wrong with DC is the fact that it has become so upscale. But I just happened to have the numbers fresh in my head because I was looking at it the other day. If you, if you break down US states by GDP per capita, you know, how economically productive they allegedly are, they all come out ahead of your average European country. You know, France would be the poorest state in, in the United States if it joined the United States, about $3,000 a year behind Mississippi. But DC is like Monaco. Yes. It's, I mean, it's like, it's double the, the, the next closest uh, one. And that has to do with not the fact that it's especially economically productive in the, in the traditional classical sense, but because you've got a lot of very high income people that are attached to government and government adjacent things. You know, it, a couple of interesting things about DC that have changed over the years, because it used to be kind of a slow, sleepy, backward capital, you know, for a long time, DC was considered the hardship appointment. If you were a, uh, European diplomat. You didn't want to get sent there because it was such a drab. and, and boring. As, as JFK called it, a city of northern charm and southern efficiency. Yeah. So D.C. is the largest per capita consumer of uh, fine wines in hmm. the country uh, right now. For a million years, the busiest Rolls-Royce dealership, or Bentley dealership, rather, in the United States was the one in uh, Beverly Hills. Um, it's been one in Maryland, as I understand it, outside D.C. for, for some time now. So D.C. is you know, doing real well for itself. And you, know, you notice this when you go there. I mean, I don't like D.C. I lived there for a year. I didn't like it, but not because it uh, you know, looks like North Philadelphia, but because it's just kind of not to my taste. But you do notice that, particularly in the central part of D.C., you know, the public spaces are a lot cleaner and more orderly than they are in a lot of the rest of the country. I mean, you do oh, yes. see homelessness and that kind of stuff, and you do see people camping out. It's not like Los Angeles or Kensington and Philadelphia or something like that. But if anything, you know, DC seems to be a step ahead of its nearest, you know, East Coast urban competitors. I mean, compare it to New York, Philly, Boston,
1: Baltimore. You know, Baltimore.
0: Well, yeah, Baltimore. You don't even want to talk about really yeah, Baltimore it is. is kind of a special case. And but even if you go south from there, you know, compared to Miami, and Miami is a city I like very much. Yeah, Miami's got some real visible problems in a way that looks worse, at least from casual observation, than D.C. does. Although I think I read something the other day that D.C. has the highest number of homeless people population adjusted in any major American city, which it doesn't feel like that when you're there, but that's what the data say, apparently. The If you, uh, my eldest man-child is going to a camp that is in Bethesda, Maryland, just across the border, and so this week I've been traversing what the former Washington Post columnist Harry Jaffe used to call upper Caucasia as you (laughs) drive through the Northwest of the city. I live on Capitol Hill, but as you drive North through the Northwest section of the city, these, you know, $10 million homes in these beautiful leafy neighborhoods. But on the way there, you will drive past pretty robust camp. I don't know what I'm supposed to call it, but you know, camps of vagrants, right. Mm -hmm. Who are set up with, They've, they've built their little communities there and you have these concentrations and the city is at many of the fruits of COVID policies that were put in place. The city cannot now unwind and the services are very good. And in some places they've set up porta potties and camp sinks for these folks to use. And, if, and if, not surprisingly, uh, it makes it less likely that they will go. Yeah. Okay. And and by the way, just the the number one takeaway from this, the Washington Post, wants to treat Donald Trump's claim as a serious claim, right? Like, well, he says that he can't have a trial here because the city's falling apart. It's only actually kind of falling apart. How about Donald Trump would say anything to get his trial moved out of Washington, (laughs) D.C.? The reason Donald Trump doesn't want to have his trial in Washington, D.C. is not because of city services. It is because the electorate in Washington, D.C. voted 85% against him the, the potential jury pool voted 85% against him in the last election. Come on. He was 90. 95. 95. Oh, well, he got 5% of the vote, a little less than 5%. People are, people are saying that Donald Trump got the most bad votes in Washington, D.C. of all time. As he once said about his COVID test, it was positive, very, neg- very positively negative. It was one of the most positive negative tests that anybody has ever had. Uh, yeah. The other thing, of course, when, when Donald Trump talks about things like this, it's always important to keep in mind that. The whole chunk doesn't know stuff. Yeah. Anything. He just doesn't know a lot of things. And so it, he just kind of fills in what he'd like, we'd we like the world to look like, and that's good enough for him. An enthusiastic ignoramus, as I like to refer to him. Okay. We have to talk about this, but we don't have to take a lot of time to talk about this. CNN put out its new lineup in the in the post-Lichtian era. They put out their new lineup, and I think, and I, I don't mean this as as any- slight against any of the individuals named, but it looks like a big meh. The new lineup will see CNN hand the 10 p.m. hour over to political correspondent and anchor Abby Phillip, with the 11 p.m. hour being hosted by legal analyst and anchor Laura Coates. In the mornings, Cassie Hunt will anchor early start, while Chief White House Correspondent Phil Mattingly joins Poppy Harlow as the co-anchor of CNN this morning. Chief Investigative Correspondent Pamela Brown will anchor a new dayside show out of the nation's capital. And what this looks like from a business perspective to me is CNN is about to be sold. It's on the chopping block to be sold. It is what it, it, all of the, the business rags seem to point to. And this strikes me as a status quo kind of move where you're, you're not bringing in any new outside talent. You're not trying something different. You're just going to move the pieces around and, and get by through this period. Yeah, I'm not a particularly useful person on this subject because so that is don't watch television news, except when there's you know, something that's live that you need to watch and is going on. Or I yeah. watched it on election nights. 2016 election, I was watching Fox News. And when it looked like Donald Trump was going to win when I switched it over to MSNBC just because I thought it'd be fun. Yeah. And it was like an Al-Qaeda hostage video. <laughs> you know, CNN being sold, I mean, I've, I've, I've read that too, of course, in the business press. I have a hard time imagining who would want to buy it. I think, you know, I remember when Newsweek was for sale a couple of years ago, and yep. it was for sale for $1. And someone, I guess, bought it for a dollar, and that person got screwed uh, on that deal because it was a terrible, terrible investment. It must have been Newsweek being what it's become. I just, why would you buy a cable network? I mean, what's the what's the advantage anymore? You know, I, I remember when, oh, when, when Trump was first started, was leaving office, and there was talk of him trying to start, you know, a, a nationwide television network. I just remember thinking, why would you do that when you have, you know... The internet's already built the infrastructure for you if you want to make video news and monetize that you don't need to be on cable you don't need to make those huge infrastructure investments you need to invest in in content and i just don't know what the advantage of buying cnn would be would be like well we were talking about newspapers early It'd be like buying you know the the cleveland newspaper because you wanted the printing press and but why would you want the printing press so the the it, the, the interesting thing about cable news and is, so we talk about cord cutting and we talk about the hollowing out of the market, right? And it hit sports hard. And we've on this show talked about the the many travails of ESPN as ABC Mm -hmm. faces competition from a lot of places that are streaming live sports because news and sports are the two things basically to your point that you need, that you want to watch live, right? You need to see it live, everything else you can stream. And news, because of the age of the average viewer, which is like in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, they have been more resistant to cord cutting than sports, which skews to a younger demographic. What CNN has is they're on every cable package in the United States and they're getting carriage fees, which before any before any ad revenue comes in they're getting all these carriage fees. Mm-hmm. So that is like the you I think the printing press by the Cleveland plane Dealer to get the printing press is a good analogy which is there is a value there. But how much that how much that's worth in an era where cable is going away, right? And it, or it's getting smushed up with streamers. But the idea of I have a cable package. I pay for a cable package you can see that the the providers are already moving towards well you just have you just give we don't care what you call it you just need to give us $100 a month and then you can watch, you can watch whatever you want that will eventually do in the the concept of basic cable but for now there is some value in that and I'm sure David Zaslav and Discovery Networks are going to are going to are going to get every nickel they can yeah, you know, I'm obviously I'm not a finance guy. I'm not, you know, wearing suspenders and, and working on Wall Street. But I think if you're going to just go out and try to buy yourself a revenue stream, I can't imagine CNN would be the best way to do that. No, but if you wanted to, like, if I was, there's a lot of reasons why I don't have a jet, many more than yours. But if I was a person who was that rich, it would be tempting to say, "I'd like to have one," right? I'd like to have a cable yeah. network. I'd like to buy one and I'd like to be, I'd like chip, I'd like an ante into the game for the same reason that Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post for the same, it's like, well, I mean, if, if, if you're a multi-billionaire, if you could get CNN at the right price, it might be, and I know this is an insane thing to say, but it might be fun. And, yeah. and, this, well, it, and it better be fun, right? Because right. You know, one of the things that a lot of rich guys don't understand is how much it costs to produce news. Lord, how much it costs to produce the journal? That guy who bought Facebook or not the Facebook guy who bought a New Republic a few years back. Yes. Like I don't think that guy understood how expensive it was going to be to run a magazine like that and to run it well. And you know, I was in, in business in Philadelphia with a business partner who was a finance guy who just was unfortunately surprised by how expensive it ended up being to run a a newspaper. I talked some people out of starting a newspaper a few years ago, some conservative activists who wanted to start up a, a newspaper newspaper. And uh, the guys, you just, you can't afford it. It's, 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 it's really expensive. And uh, you're running CNN. Good Lord, I can't imagine just what the burn is on that place. It, and and the, the one appeal, if you owned it, would be that you could smash it, right? Uh, Chris Licht came in and had a mandate for change, but he had responsibility, but not authority and could not, you know, CNN is is old by media standards mm-hmm. and d- has deeply entrenched folkways and disparate power structures that would be very difficult to get a hold of. But it would be fun to see what you could do. It would be, I, I admit, as a masochist, it would be fun to see what you could do. So if anybody wants to buy CNN and put me in charge of it, let me know. It would be fun. A coda to another cable news story. Fox News chief legal officer Will Depart, Viet Din, who I'm not a lawyer and I don't know enough about these matters to to make some broad claim about incompetence, but I would say that Viet Dinh's departure with, I think, a 20 million, couple dozen million dollars in parting gifts at the end of the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit is... A remarkable evidence of how it is possible to get something wrong in every single way that they the network got it wrong at the beginning about how to deal with the 2020 election and then we're going to fight tooth and nail against the lawsuit over dominion and then end up settling it anyway and then end up having to pay this guy a bunch of money to go away and it just it's the it it a a cancotnation cancot is that how you pronounce that concatenation concatenation a concatenation of errors leading to this moment so uh, there's the note any thoughts yeah. You know, Fox News is going to end up being just a real resume stain on a lot of people. Hey, hey, easy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, you, uh, many you good got, people. Many good people. Yeah. Good people on both sides, Kevin. Good people good on people both sides. sides. So you, you got fired. That's uh, you know, the courage over there. But, um, you know, I mean, do you, I mean you, you're going to want to leave with 20 or 30 million dollars, right? Because when are you going to roll into your next job and say, yeah, I was a genius who was advising Fox News throughout. The right couple, <laughs> from su- from such hits as "Take them to court, fight them in court." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that that is a fact. And we should—I don't think we have it anywhere here in the show. But in six days from this recording, Fox faces a very difficult moment with the first Republican debate in Milwaukee, mm. and it's very hard to keep. Together, the idea Fox has been trying to restore the idea of there is a news division here. And I want to, I do credit Brett Bear with what was the best interview with Donald Trump that I've seen Mm -hmm. done in recent memory. But you're going to have this huge Republican audience come in to come watch and very uh, highly sensitive voters. So this will be a real test for the the effort for reputational rehabilitation. Yeah. Do you think it's salvageable? I mean, I mean, not, not in the, the sort of shallowest sense, I mean, because people will think what they think, but in the, in, in the more practical sense that, it, in that to do the things that Fox News would need to do to salvage its reputation would alienate so much of its current viewership, whereas courting that viewership and doing the necessary fan service for them will prevent them doing the things necessary to rehabilitate their reputation. It seems like they can do one thing or the other and Rupert Murdoch is not known for giving away money. Do, do, you, do you remember when the Jack in the Box fast food chain had a series of food poisoning, like serious food poisoning? I don't, I don't remember whether it was E. coli or what, but serious, maybe even fatal food poisonings. Do you, does, that, does that ring a bell? Yeah, I remember thinking, how could you tell? Right. So that is a, was a reputational problem for Jack in the Box. But Jack in the Box did not need to become the French Laundry, right? They did not need. They did not need to get back. It's like or White Castle or whatever. They they had a reputational problem, but they didn't need. And and you know, I don't think Fox News is going to go back to what it maybe once was in terms of a news division. But I think that getting to a a, a health inspector like yeah, okay, this is you can operate. This is this is safe enough. Uh, is an attainable goal because Fox only needs to reach that threshold that is keep yourself in the White House press pool, keep yourself credentialed, keep yourself basically functioning in that way. And that doesn't require, you know, getting that uh, stamp of approval. You don't need a lot. You just need to basically say for, for people who are not part of your core audience to say, that's better than Newsmax. I don't know. I guess. Right. Yeah, you know, Jack in the Box actually sort of set the tone for something, which is when a fast food franchise is not doing well, what they do is adopt a kind of creepy, self-deprecating yes. marketing campaign yes. like Arby's has over the years. So, well, I sp- well wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I don't think you can just throw Arby's in there just in the, in that sort of offhand way. This isn't a Burger King. I mean Arby's is delicious. I I am I'm, I'm I feel I feel victimized by your anti-meat sentiments, Kevin. I don't well, know. I used to work at Burger King, so maybe I have some bias there, but pro or con, did working at Burger King give you a pro or con Burger King bias? It gave me actually a pretty strong pro Burger King bias in this sense that I went into that job expecting it to be just really disgusting and that the preparation of the food was going to be gross and weird and stuff, and it was surprisingly hygienic and conscientious and, and well done that's um, and that's all fox is looking for all fox <laughs> is looking for is i right. thought this would be much worse ah you know what this is mostly safe this is mostly this is mostly safe so you and, know your know, meat comes in grades like you know grade a and mm-hmm. usda all that the, the meat we got at burger king was marked fit for human consumption and it was and, and it, it was. was. It That's was. A, it's certain. what Block News need to be shooting for. You know, our news is fit for human consumption. I, th- I think we've got, I think we've nailed it. By the way, where do you fall on Whataburger as a Texan? What's your, what, what's your, what's your standing? Okay. So, Whataburger is first of all overrated. Whataburger's fine. Don't get me wrong. I like Whataburger. Yeah. It's, it's overrated, but it's also, it's not, it's not really, or wasn't until very recently, a, a really truly Texas wide phenomenon. You know, Whataburger's kind of, a, uh, you know, triangle, urban Texas, you know, Houston, Dallas phenomenon. So the the great unknown Texas fast food restaurant is Taco Villa. Let's see. see. Now they only have that out in you know the Panhandle, really, and West Texas. But uh, if you could figure out a way to make Taco Villa in Brooklyn, you would be a billionaire. I I agree with one of my sons who described Whataburger as good Burger King, and I think there I th- I think yeah. there I think there's something to that. My favorite Texas bar, uh, my favorite Texas fast food restaurant, is of course Bill Miller Barbecue, which I know is not great barbecue, but is available and reliable and exists in all of these places. And I wish, I wish Bill Miller would would make a move on Washington D.C. because I'd be into it. Yeah, yeah. Not, not to go off on a tangent here, but one of the one of the developments in the world that I sort of disapprove of is the attempt to make barbecue fancy the way bourbon has been made fancy. Word. Say word, brother. All these, you know, super kind of high-end foo-foo hipster barbecue places in New York and Washington and and other places. And I like bourbon. I think most people would look at me and say, there's a guy who likes bourbon probably. (laughs) But if you want to sell me a glass of bourbon at $250, which I think is what Van Winkle goes for in a bar these days. Yep. No, not going to happen. It's just nuts. Barbecue is poverty food barbecue, like bean soup, or we could, we could list a number of poverty foods. Yes. That are delicious. And we love them because they taste like the time, right? I don't, I always use the meatloaf example. People don't have to eat meatloaf for the reasons that people started eating meatloaf, which was you needed to stretch the meat or meatballs, Mm -hmm. right? That you put a little bread in there to, to, to make it go farther. People don't need that anymore, but they want it. And taking uh, poverty food or poverty drink and turning it into a high end thing sort of sucks the soul out of it. And barbecue is supposed to be a way to take undesirable cuts of meat and turn them into something delicious through the alchemy of smoke and rub and time and care. And that's really good when you go, when you turn it into haute cuisine, you have failed. Yeah. Okay. A dangerous decision says Yahoo News in scare quotes in their headline, Canadian news is disappearing from Instagram and Facebook. And I do want to, I do want to first alert listeners to the name of the author of this piece, which makes it as the Yahoo News Canada reporter's name is Com Van Hoopen. So here is Com Van Hoepen, who I assume is from the Quebecois side of the of the nation Canadians are no longer able to access news on social platforms Instagram and Facebook as tech giant Meta has followed through on their promise to block news on their platforms while the ban officially went into effect on August 1st it has been steadily rolled out across Canada over the past 2 weeks Meta signaled with an extra L to be Canadian this move would be coming as a response to the federal government passing its Online News Act, Bill C-18, back in June. Google followed suit shortly after by announcing they would be removing links to Canadian news from Canadian Search, News, and Discover products if an agreement with the Canadian government cannot be reached by the time obligations under the Online News Act come into force. Okay, so we saw this in Australia where something somewhat similar happened. And people in the United States have talked to, I think, increasingly small returns about clamping down on the way that social media prioritizes news, what stories are they're allowed to post, what stories they're not allowed to post, and what remunerations they provide to local news providers or national news providers. What say you, Kevin Williamson? One of my least favorite sort of pattern stories in in political journalism is government says, if you do X, you have to give us a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And then someone says, very well, then I shall not do X. Right. And then the third story is, oh my God, it's so unfair. How dare you cease doing X? And that's, you know, what this what this story is. I mean, there's all sorts of I mean you can go back to the late nineties and chart the mistakes that the journalism business made vis-a-vis the, the rise of the internet, and then especially social media later, not getting this stuff right. But if you're going to you know tell Facebook that you're essentially going to impose a, a revenue sharing scheme on them that it's not of their design in order to to move money over to other media companies, they're probably not going to accept that. You know, this is not, <laughs> this is, this is not the way they, that they do things. And it's kind of silly to accept them to you, to expect them to you rather. I mean, not to plug the dispatch, plug away, plug away. But, you know, the the old fashioned way of, of paying for newspapers, of course, was charging people for the product <laughs> and saying, here, we've created something that you will find interesting. Here it is. And it cost a buck or it costs, you know, it costs $10 a month or whatever it is. And uh, that worked pretty well for a long time for newspapers. And then, you know, starting in the 90s, we decided everything's going to be free and we'll somehow make that up on one one thousandth of a penny clicks on ads delivered to us by google and it was attractive to a lot of corporate executives because it lets someone else do the work you know selling advertising is really really hard you get rejected a lot selling subscriptions is really hard too so the idea that there are these smart guys out in silicon valley who are going to take care of the money into stuff for us and all we have to do is take the money and and then keep reporting the news was never ever 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 going to work and so Companies have been sort of slowly rediscovering basically the 19th century model of, of, of newspaper journalism, in a, in a digital way. You know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Dispatch—we've all had pretty good success with a subscriber-based model. The New York Times, I guess, is you know, 10 years ago, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, was in a position where they could pay all of their editorial expenses just from online subscription And, and from, from online advertising revenue, I guess, just their digital revenue, so they could never print another newspaper if they didn't need to. And they wouldn't have to get rid of a single reporter, columnist, photographer, anything like that. So the, the revenue is out there and there there are ways to do that. The problem is expecting social media companies, particularly social media companies in a different country to take care of this problem Mm -hmm. for you. You, one of the things the Europeans have really not seem to got their heads around is they want to be the kind of super regulator of social media companies and and in internet platforms but not a single one of those companies of any real importance is based in the european union they're all american firms pretty much yes and so you can harass them to the extent that they do business in germany or that they do business in you know sweden or some other market that's smaller than dallas as some you know, european countries are are in terms of population, smaller in the DFW metro, certainly. And you just don't have that kind of regulatory leverage over them. Now, if you were if you in the U.S. federal government and you were trying to impose something on Facebook that they didn't really want like that, they can't just walk away from the U.S. market because it's too big. You can walk away from the Canadian market. You can walk away from the Norwegian market or the Swiss market. You know, you can do a perfectly good business just being in business in the United States. But, you know, the United States, India, China, and Indonesia – is a big, big chunk of the world's population. And you don't have to be in Western Europe, I suppose. You don't have to be in Western Europe and you don't have to be in Canada, but also you don't have to be in Florida and you don't have to be in Texas. And the horizontal federalism that some states have attempted on social media where they're going to try to get basically a California emission standard effect Uh, On social media in the United States. Florida and Texas have both tried it. Other states I know have too, and I can't remember what. And so far, the courts are resisting the idea because you can't, it'd be be a lot harder to not have Facebook in Texas, right? To say, okay, well, is this poster they're from Texas, but they're accessing the site uh, on vacation? There are significant challenges uh, to trying to do that, but we've at least seen that here. Yeah. But did you know, Kevin, did you know that the local news crisis is weirdly easy to solve? So it's it's it apparently is much, much easier than we knew. And this piece comes from The Atlantic and it's by someone named Stephen Waldman. Restoring the journalism jobs lost over the past 20 years wouldn't just be cheap. It would pay for itself. Why are we why have us bunch of dummies not figured this out sooner? Here's what he says. Every time I hear the words "pay for itself," man, it I just you ready to jump out a window. It pays for itself. Ideally, investment in local news would come from the federal government. Oh, which has more freedom to think long term, does it, than cash-strapped states? <laughs> yes, famous, famous for its long-term strategic thinking, than long-term than cash-strapped states and municipalities do. The Rebuild Local News Coalition, of which I am president. Ah, not just he's not just the president though. Supports legislation that would provide a refundable tax credit for news organizations that employ local reporters and a tax break for small businesses that advertise in local news. What could go wrong? A new version of the bill was just introduced in the House of Representatives by the Republican Claudia Tenney and Democrat Susan DelBene. Civic minded philanthropists focused on high impact donations should also put money into local news given the likely societal returns. It's impossible to quantify how much money would be generated for government and consumers by restoring the health of local news. But it's nearly as hard to deny that the investment would pay off handsomely. And the saving democracy part, question mark, well, that's just gravy. And when I tell you how much, I I cannot tell you how much I hated this piece. I cannot tell you how, as a person who is has spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about the news business and local news and what could be done to make it profitable, this person is making the argument that if the federal government were to sluice money into the local news business, and we can leave aside for now the arguments about the First Amendment and what would happen, and when the government is your patron, your willingness to criticize the government or report the I assume that the same thing would happen as happens with car dealers or other big advertisers, which is your expose on odometer rollbacks uh, is frowned upon when your when your main advertiser is a car dealer, even leaving aside all of the, those significant and important questions about the the Republic and the order of things and constitutionality and free and the free press. local news does provide economic benefits and some of them can be enumerated right it Mm. does there are costs to municipalities that lose newspapers there's been a lot of academic research that's pointed out that when people are not being covered by the press and when there is not accountability they don't do as good of a job in their uh, in their work that corruption and uh, misfeasance and malfeasance rack up a cost when people are not being observed but that's not even what this person is talking about this person is, it, it's just, uh, please help me, Kevin, because my brain hurts after reading this. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've never heard of this publication before, The Atlantic, you said it was called? I don't know. They they had a writer one time for like three days that was pretty good. But then after that, it was kaput. Can't imagine it has any kind of future. <laughs> yeah. So local, like hyper local news was my business for a long time. So I ran, you know, weekly community newspapers where you cover every school board meeting. You cover the police department, every DUI, domestic violence call. You get the whole police blotter. You know, you cover the planning and zoning meetings, which you always have to hire some like kind of fifty-five-year-old alcoholic to cover planning and zoning meetings because they, they desperately need the paycheck and they, they're the only people who will sit through them. Yeah, it's, it's expensive to do that. I my theory about the kind of broader economics of, of journalism is, is this. If you're a big international brand or a big national brand like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, you're going to be fine. Those papers have a future. Uh, they know how to sell subscriptions. They know how to sell advertising. I love that the New York Times, all this you know class warfare and inequality stuff is sponsored by Cartier right. mainly. But well, let's set that aside for a second. I also think there's probably a future for the hyper, hyper local stuff. You know, so not like, you know, DFW Metroplex, but someone covering, say, Arlington. You know, we're going to cover the Arlington PD and the Arlington School Board and Arlington Planning and Zoning and the Arlington Town Council, and everything in the middle is going to get wiped out. You know, if you were the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I just, you couldn't give me that newspaper. Atlanta is a pretty vibrant city with a real future, but that newspaper, I think, is just economically in the wrong place for it. The same way the Dallas Morning News is struggling, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and all those kinds of newspapers. And the Plain Dealer, which we mentioned earlier, which is one of my favorite newspaper names. So... But the idea that you're going to fix this by having the federal government to send checks to people to set up news organizations, of course, bananas in in all sorts of ways. Obviously, the built-in weird incentives of having single-payer journalism, you you have to figure that that single-payer is going to have a lot of problem. I I guess what's particularly annoying to me about this is I didn't really see any necessity for it. The economics of running a small, I mean, it would be digital. It wouldn't probably be print anymore, maybe a weekly print product, news service, you know, covering hyper local stuff of the sort that I talked about can make sense. And there are people doing stuff like this on Substack. There are people doing other kinds of very, very focused journalism that works out just fine economically because you don't have any competition, right? You know, if you're going to cover Mule Shoe, Texas, you're going to be the only guy covering Mule Shoe, Texas. Right. There's not going to be 500 people coming out of the Annenberg School of Journalism every year who want to be the Mule Shoe guy. It's just not gonna not gonna happen. Muleshoe is a real place, by the way. Everyone always thinks I'm making it up. Nice little town. Even you know things like NPR, which are I mean they're public and they are government supported to an extent. I know they they always try to minimize that, but even those, to the modest extent that they are, it really has kind of a neutering effect. Yes, and it also has the effect of making them partisans of the party of bigger and more activist government, which is is no surprise. And I don't think you want to replicate that effect. You know in every local journalism outlet in the country it's just a terrible idea for for all sorts of reasons but also framing it as a job creating thing you know recovering those jobs we're gonna recover the jobs because when i when i worked at the lupic avalanche journal in the 90s we must have had must have had 400 employees or 300 employees or something like that total between the press room composing room you know ad sales class drivers drivers journalists and photographers and all that, I think we had seven photographers on staff or something like that. You're never going to have an operation with that many people anymore. A lot of them aren't needed because you're not going to need press room. You're not going to need drivers. You're not going to need composing rooms. Uh, Technology has made a lot of this stuff obsolete. It's taken away a lot of the layers of personnel between people who produce the actual journalistic content and the people who consume it which has been good in a lot of ways, except for there's less editing than there used to be and less copy editing, which is unfortunate. All right. A a story that is right at our wheelhouse, but has caught lots of national attention, so we don't need to belabor it. The, The Marion County, Kansas newspaper that was raided and had all of its equipment seized by town officials- because of there was they reported on the DUI, I think, of a of a local business owner who had sway with the local authorities and they cracked down a a mighty upcry of from the national media about the attack on the Marion County record has gone far and wide. Local officials have backed down. They've returned the stuff and the Marion County record has no doubt experienced peak traffic and <laughs> and peak attention. So I, I feel like the right thing happened here. It's obviously wrong what town officials did, but it was good that people rallied to the Marion County records defense. And I is, am I missing something? Just the fact that the people who made the order need to go to jail. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, the that is it. Yeah. Th- those, those people should, Definitely be prosecuted for abuse of power. That is a hundred percent. Good point, Kevin Williamson. Just in a follow file, one of my favorites from the Washington Post headline: "Inflation rate ticks up for the first time in over a year." That sounds bad. But economists don't think hefty price increases are returning. So Kevin, here I have chronicled the mighty efforts by the Washington Post in their news alerts to contextualize economic news. And by contextualize, I mean soft, soft soap economic news. And it, this, this was to me a particularly uh, delicious example where the news is clearly bad, right? After months of saying inflation rates are going down, the the increase in prices is is not as great as it was the previous month and isn't that news. It goes up again. But even in the headline on the news alert, have to get to the, well, but economists, they don't think hefty prices and price increases are returning. Yeah. I think it was the Washington Post that I took this out of for my newsletter, which you should all be subscribing to through the dispatch. You most certainly should. And where there were two headlines that were adjacent to one another. And one of them was with inflation easing, it's a mystery why fuel and food prices are so high. Yeah, And then the next headline was Inflation is up this month after. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. yeah. If only there were some explanation. We we could figure out why that was happening. Yes. Interesting. Okay. I denounced a piece in the Atlantic earlier. Now I I bring one to praise in the Atlantic from Jill Philip. I don't pronounce her name correctly. Jill Filipovic. Probably. I think that's right. She's famous, but I still can't pronounce her name headline i was wrong about trigger warnings and oh, yeah. and i i put this in the category of there was a piece about rethinking feminism's approach to men in the washington post there there is a migration in elite publications or mainstream however you want to term them legacy news organizations or whatever to have some space for some rethinking of things And I also always like to credit journalists when they can say that they were wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And when they can say, and obviously no one, I don't agree with everything, all of her positions in this, but I do, I do admire the willingness to see her part in the problem. And basically what she identifies is that coddling and cosseting, in this case, young women, particularly trigger warning, sexual assault, all of that stuff has produced a kind of callowness or incapacity to deal with life on life's terms, and that that has been dangerous. And I say good for her. Yeah. I was trying to think, I've written a couple of pieces with the headline, I was wrong about X Mm -hmm. over the years, although I'm trying to think about what they actually were. What have you been wrong about, Chris? I was definitely wrong about the response in Republican elites to Donald Trump's efforts to steal a second term. I was very blasé. I thought, ah, come on, that's not going to happen, right? There, there's no way that these people are going to go along with this. And then they they most certainly did. I was, I was very wrong about that. I was super wrong about 2016 in general. I, was, I guess a lot of people were, so maybe there's some strength, safety in numbers there. But yeah, up until election day, I was just insufferable about there's no way this guy gets elected you idiots are just throwing this away, blah, 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 blah. And, when, I, when I told people in 2016 that Donald Trump had a one in five chance of winning, the, the I was like, yeah, I think it's probably about one in five. And of course, Donald Trump supporters subsequently told me that I said Donald Trump couldn't win. And I said, well, I didn't mm-hmm. say that. And Hillary Clinton supporters said that I had been, that I had not I correctly identified the threat. And of course I said, you wouldn't get on an elevator that had a one in five chance of plummeting 30 stories into the earth. One in five is actually quite a lot. Statistically unlikely things do happen, but it was not as statistically unlikely as I thought it was. And yeah, you you weren't out there saying that there was no way that ever happened, but I I, I certainly was. Okay, the perils of activist journalism. This Mm. is a very good piece. Oh, and oh, it was Kevin D. Williamson who wrote it. Oh, well, isn't that convenient? But I, I promise you, sir, that this would have been included in the show, whether you were guest hosting or not. But you take, it takes the form of a memo uh, to Mark Joseph Stern from the copy desk, RE, errors, willful misinterpretation, general journalistic incompetence and malpractice, etc. And it is a piece about a piece that was on ghost guns in Slate, do tell. Thanks for reminding me what it was about. Sometimes <laughs> forget after So one of the things I like to do, I've, I've, I've used this format for a while. So I was a copy editor for a long time. Just taking a piece that's particularly bad and just copy editing the thing. I didn't actually completely copy edit Stern's piece on this one, although I just I wrote a copy desk memo about it. So it's for, for various reasons, it, it falls to me and to Charles C.W. Cook to, to an extent to just run an endless corrections operation on journalism having to do with guns. Yes. And this isn't really about policy disagreements and stuff, although there are policy disagreements here to talk about. It's just that no one seems to be able to write about this stuff competently. So Stern has this piece about so-called ghost guns, which actually refers to more than one kind of firearm, but set this aside for a second. What is a ghost Um, gun? Well, a ghost gun is a gun without a serial number on it, essentially. So sometimes those are regular guns that people have taken the serial numbers off of, but mainly what people mean by that now is guns that people have made at home, mm-hmm. either by 3D printing or because they're machinists or because you can order parts and uh, basically put those together almost into a functioning firearm. And that's where we're starting to really get stuff wrong. So there's a, a real regulatory question. It's a fair question about how much of a gun can you sell somebody before that counts as selling them a gun? So exactly. not the firing pin. So if I sell you a gun but doesn't have a firing pin in it, have I sold you a gun? Right. Now, under federal law, yes, you have. So the way that the ATF has has dealt with that historically is by regulating something called a receiver. So the receiver is just kind of the main frame of the gun. It's the the hunk of metal in the middle that every metal in the middle that everything else sticks onto. And so a finished receiver is a firearm as far as the law is concerned. So it doesn't actually have to be a functioning gun. It can just be the receiver itself, you know, with no firing pin, no trigger, no chamber, none of that stuff, no barrel. That's, that's a firearm. But that in turn raises another question. Well, a receiver is just a piece of metal that's been shaped, you know, milled in a certain way. So at what stage of completion does it become a firearm as far as the regulators are concerned? And so there's this thing known as the 80% rule. So ATF insists that a receiver... That is more than 80% complete is a firearm as far as its regulations are concerned. Now, that sounds like it's precise because you have 80% on there. That 80% doesn't actually mean anything. So what you do is if you're selling unfinished receivers, you send one to the ATF and you say, is this okay? And they'll either say yes or no. And then you can sell those and the unfinished ones require some degree of work to become functioning receivers. Now, usually this means drilling some holes in it and doing some kind of light machining work. It's not something that can just simply be assembled. And this is where Stern got his, his thing wrong. So if you sell someone a bucket of parts that can just be put together into a working firearm, that's already against the law or it's already regulated as a firearm sale. So what we're talking about is you know pieces of milled metal that require some additional work. Now, normally, because capitalism is, is very effective, when you buy these they come with instructions on how to finish it off mm-hmm. and sometimes with you know a jig and a router guide and all the rest of that stuff so you can do it relatively easily so people do buy these for various reasons and uh partly to get around uh farms yeah. uh regulations partly for other reasons some people are just hobbyists and like to build guns uh charlie cook who i mentioned earlier is, is one of those people now if you're a criminal you want to put your hands on a gun the way they normally do is they steal one yeah or they buy a stolen gun from somebody or you get your girlfriend to go to the gun store and buy a gun for you. There's various ways to do it. There's a lot easier, uh, there's a lot easier ways to get a hold of a gun illegally than setting up a drill press in your yeah. garage. Yeah. Now now, according to federal data, seizures of these guns are way, way up over the last couple of years. Okay. By a thousand percent and more. That's really driven by bookkeeping changes, that they're actually noting this stuff in a way that they didn't before. But I mean, it's, it's an issue. There have been times when people have used these to commit crimes and such. And as such, they should, you know, be subject to the same kind of regulation as anything else. The problem is that, you know, our, our gun control discourse always focuses on these crazy exotic things, other than the fact that most guns are committed with whatever the most, most gun crimes are committed with whatever the most common form of handgun is at that period in time. So at one point it was 30 gate revolvers because that was what everyone had. Now it's nine millimeter automatics. Almost never bought from a gun dealer of the people who are currently in jail who had a gun on them at the time they committed the crime for which they are incarcerated. Fewer than 2% of those people bought that gun from a gun dealer. And that matters because part of the argument about ghost guns, they don't have serial numbers on them and they're hard to trace for that reason. But you can't really trace most guns back to criminals anyway because they didn't buy them from a gun dealer. So there's no record connecting them to that serial number. So what you would do is you would get a serial, if you trace the serial number, you would find the first person to buy it from a licensed firearms dealer. But typically guns will change times, change hands several times uh, before they end up being used in a crime. The exception to that tends to be domestic violence, of various kinds involving Mm -hmm. firearms, where people take a gun they've legally bought that they have in their home and they do something terrible with it. Um, But that's pretty low, it's a pretty small subset of, of crimes. So we end up talking about things like, oh, California passed a law or was going to pass a law a couple of years ago about 50 caliber rifles. And 50 caliber rifles are these big, powerful guns that you can shoot something from a mile away with. And there's never been one used in a murder in the United States, as far as we know. Well, no, because they're five and a half feet long and they weigh 40 pounds and they cost $10,000. Would be hard. Uh, people, People don't rob liquor stores with these things. Um, You know, fully automatic weapons are almost never used in in murders in the United States. Uh, Ones that are legally owned by civilians. I think there have been two cases since the National Firearms Act was passed way back when. There have been a few more murders involving fully automatic weapons, but there were cops and soldiers using weapons they had been issued. That's another interesting thing about this. So when they, the ATF traces guns that are sent to them by state and local governments to try to figure out where they came from and the number of guns that couldn't be traced back to a retail source because they were ghost guns was almost the same as the number of guns that couldn't be traced back to a retail source because they were government issue because they came from police departments or from from militaries so which is a very very small number we don't have a lot of police issued guns that end up on the street being used in murders although they they do from time to time so we 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 tend to I call this the problem of you know, sharks and cows. Okay, um, we have Shark Week on television. Everyone worries about shark attacks. Sharks are very terrifying. You're much more likely to be killed by a cow, yeah, or a deer, or a moose, or a bee, or all sorts of other animals. And the same thing kind of holds with guns. We worry about these scary-looking military weapons when that's not really what where American gun violence comes from. Cheap. That hand being gun. said, cheap, I, 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 didn't I take is it. are cheap oh, handguns right, still the most common? weapon for homicides in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of the, what's the number? So all long guns together, which is all rifles and shotguns add up to something like it's three or 4% of murders in most years. So so so-called assault rifles are way, way down that list. they are a subcategory of that again, and people don't choose handguns because they particularly, you know, don't want the power or Aimability of a rifle, but because you can't put one in your glove box. Can't you put can't one walk around with box. one in the in the waistband of your pants. So, you know, handguns have always been the weapon of choice for American criminals, and whatever the most common handgun is, is typically the, the most common criminal weapon. You go through 13 specific outright errors, logical fallacies, misrepresentations point by mm-hmm. point in a steadfast way. You address the framing of the article. You talk about all of the the failings in, in these great, delightfully detailed ways, but I love your kicker. Obviously, we can't publish this mess. Slate has journalistic standards, after all. Zing. That was a that was an, a, an excellent zing, sir. Thanks. Ten out of I ten. Got some, some help from the editors on that one. That wasn't my original ending. It was mine was a little a little meaner but less economical. <laughs> meaner but less economical. I I aspire to those standards. Okay, just a brief sports note, and I just I'm, I'm mentioning it here mostly so that we can include it in the show notes because it's a good link and people ought to read it. I hate the Cincinnati Reds, boo! But retired Reds beat writer John Fay's life story is a love story. This is by Dan Horn at the Cincinnati Enquirer. It's a beautiful obituary, and one of my hobby horses, Kevin, is. I want obituaries to return because if you want to know America, if you want to know what's really going on in America, obituaries were a great way to see how normal people were living their lives and the, virtue, the virtuous life of ordinary people. And while John Fay was not entirely ordinary, he was in the media. He was uh, a yeoman in the media and uh, a beat writer for the Cincinnati Reds is not a highly glamorous position, but this uh, picture of his life and his marriage and all of these things and how he loved his craft is really beautiful. And I really appreciated it here, here. Okay. On to in Eliana's absence, our style section. Now I, and I think you and I are in a bad position to address this story because I didn't even know what all the words in the headline were for today's style section. Headline, this is in Axios, Miami. Mm. As BBLs grow more popular, deaths rise in South Florida. Now, what is a BBL? You probably wonder. And fortunately, writer Martin Vesalio Vesolo helps us. Brazilian butt lifts are ballooning. Okay. Credits for that in popularity across the country, but the death toll from botched procedures is growing as well. Now, I like this for a couple of reasons, not of course the deaths through Brazilian butt lifts, but the, the journalism about it, because the Axios prompt system where the local reporter is to fill in and answer the questions in bold as they go through are really good for Brazilian butt lifts. Why it matters. Does it? I don't know. How it works by the numbers there were 25 bbl related fat embolism deaths in south florida between 2010 and 2022 per the study how'd you like to be that academic researcher about 92 percent of the procedures were performed at high uh, high volume budget clinics that are often seen in local strip malls state of play what's the state of play kevin what is the state of play on brazilian butt lifts the florida board of medicine issued an emergency order in 2019 requiring surgeons to only inject fat grafts under the skin instead of in the muscle. Well, at least they're on it. Central Florida resident Nikki Rustin, who was hospitalized for her BBL in Miami last July, told the Kaiser Family Foundation Health News that she found her surgeon on Instagram by looking for cost-effective op- options. And this is her quote. This is the kicker quote. If I could go back in time, I wouldn't have had it done. So there you go. News you can use, Kevin. If you're When you get your Brazilian butt lift, find a reputable provider. I'll keep that in in, in mind. Yeah, I Um, just... I I do spend a fair amount of time in in South Florida. You're open to it? Is that what you're saying? You're leaving the the door ajar? Not leaving the door ajar. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking about it in terms of breast implants, right? Okay, okay. You're sometimes like, you see a woman who's had breast implants put on, and like from 100 yards away, those look like breast implants. They look like they're bolted onto her collarbones. Yeah, something like that. And then there are you know, some women who, who who do that, and they look more natural, that sort of thing. So I was just think you know, occasionally, in, in particularly in South Florida, you will see someone who has um, obviously had implants on the other side, and it can look a little weird. It can definitely look a little weird, and it is it is beyond it is beyond me entirely, from beginning to no pun intended end. The whole the the, the whole the whole phenomenon mystifies me, but that's why it's good. That South Florida has Axios there to tell them why it matters. I have a question for you. This was yeah, yeah. an Instagram, there's an Instagram account called Overheard District, which purports to, but I don't, I think many of them are made up, but purports to share things overheard and then anonymously passed on to this account that people are overhearing in DC. And it says that this is was overheard at the George Washington University Hospital. Nurse says, how are you going to get home today, sir? Patient, I live at the Watergate. It's practically across the street. I'm walking. Someone has to come get you, sir. Patient, I'm a newspaper columnist. Don't make this difficult. I could write about it. What newspaper? Answer, one of the big ones. Who is it, Kevin? Who, was it Jonah? Do you think it was Jonah? Who was was throwing their weight around at George Washington Hospital so they could leave on their own recognizance? Hmm. That's, uh, that's... Good question. I'm going to bet it's not George Will. Not George Will. No, no, no. He he Doesn't gets him like a George Will thing to do. That uh, no, he he gets his Brazilian butt lifts done out, down in Miami. So it, well, it definitely wasn't him. But the the part that I like about this is the idea that that is the flex. I cannot imagine a scenario in which I would say, "Oh, I'm a pundit." It I, I'll talk about it if you don't let me walk home on my own recognizance. This strikes me as not only a a douchey thing to do, but also an ineffective thing to do. This is not the kind of flex that somebody's gonna be like, wait a minute, you're a newspaper columnist? Well, you can do whatever you want. I think that if I how douchey am I? Pretty douchey. Okay. I think that if I thought it would work, I would be I would be tempted to to engage in that sort of thing. More tempted to, to, to slip that in there, To I, w- I will tell you, on uh, one time I had lost my wallet and I got onto an airplane because the guy at the TSA said, do you, do you have any kind of identification? And I went over to the newsstand and got the newspaper and coverage of my speech and visit to the town was on the front page of the newspaper. And that got me on the airplane. So that was the that was that was peak douche for me. I had a friend who did almost exactly the same thing. He'd won some sort of journalism award as a college student, and he was in New York collecting the award. And there was an article about it in the Times and a picture of him. And he went to cash the check that he'd gotten as his his prize. And I guess he didn't have ID or ID that they wouldn't accept. And a friend of him who was with it pulled out the New York Times and pointed to his picture. And apparently that was good enough for a New York bank. Well, until we know the truth on this one, I'm just going to tell people it was Jonah. That's just what I'm going to do. Okay, it's time for our obsessions. Kevin, the visiting team goes first here. What is your obsession this week? So I I picked this one because I'm working on it, among other things. But uh, this story out of Provo with this idiot who got himself killed by the FBI, making threats against President Biden and some other people and posting pictures of his rifle on... Twitter or whatever, is it still called Twitter? Is it called X now? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't commit to the change yet. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm hoping it'll fade. Referring to his guns as his, you know, Democrat eradication tools and sort of sharing some really uh, specific fantasies about, you know, shooting Gavin Newsom in the head and watching his life slowly about, I mean, not, not like sort of, you know, borderline case stuff. Right. And so he was talking about getting his, was the M24 sniper rifle and his ghillie suit out and assassinating biden and then kamala harris anyway so as will happen in situations like this the feds came and paid him a visit and he had had some run-ins with the police before involving firearms he had brought a you know an ar type rifle to the door when the police came on an earlier call and then i guess the fbi or some other federal agency had been out there before and had had a run-in with him anyway so he how to put it this is, you know, special special forces operator Walter Mitty. Uh, you know, so the guy was—he's seventy-five years old. He used a cane. He was, you know, kind of out of shape. He had some minor or partial disability. Um, he doesn't seem to have got out of the house a lot. He probably wasn't much of a threat to anybody. He certainly wasn't going to go to Washington and 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 shoot the president. Although the president was going to, to Provo, where he was, and so the FBI came calling. They were going to serve an arrest warrant on him. He shows, comes to the door, he's got a three fifty-seven revolver on him, and altercation ensues, and he ends up getting killed, and that was that. I have some questions about how the arrest was handled and procedures they went through that I'm still trying to dig into. I'm not saying that there was excessive force involved or anything, but there are often situations like this where there are other ways to get someone out and arrest them rather than to... I mean, they drove a breaching vehicle through his house, through a window, I guess, and ran in that way. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was not. It was not just kicking in the doors. Apparently, they tried to knock the door down with a battering ram and weren't able to for for one reason or another. So either they weren't very good at it, or he had a really, really sturdy door. In which case, I want to know what kind of door it was because I'm
1: you're you're in the market.
0: Yeah, I'm always in the market for a good sturdy door. Anyway, so it's it's a it's a conjunction of, of things that I'm interested in the way that social media makes people idiots, the current taste for violence and political violence on the right, and the kind of Trump world. There's a woman in Houston, I guess this morning or yesterday, who also got herself arrested in a similar case, although she did not get herself shot. So yeah, I'm digging into this stuff for a dispatch piece, and I hope to have something on it in the next couple of days. I'll tell, I'll tell Rachel to be on the lookout. My obsession is we've we've had a, a, a string here of stories that were brought by student journalists at the Daily Northwestern or whatever about hazing in their football program. It, I think, it was Stanford. The president of Stanford who had falsified his uh, academic bona fides and forced him out, and all of this stuff. And at what does Fire stand for? I forget what it stands for, but it's a student free speech. It it, emph- it emphasizes student free speech. And It was the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. There you go. But uh, this essay from Emma Maple, who is working at FIRE this summer, and she's a rising senior at Whitworth University, which I'm sorry to say I do, do not know, and she talks about the tensions between a free and independent student publication and one that uh, is overseen and controlled by the administration. These are very good points and I commend you to read it, but to me, it, and I, I, when I was a student newspaper man, independence was really important. Having an independent stream of revenue from subscriptions, having autonomy from the, the administration was really important, especially because we were often saying things that the administration did not dig, or many in the administration did not dig, and this, this is important But I I want to use this to turn a light on a larger thing and something we were talking about earlier. And this goes to government funding of journalism and this goes to patronage, journalism and all of that stuff. The journalism that helps. And the journalism that's good will often bite the hand that feeds it. Right. Mm -hmm. If you want. There are downsides to independent journalism. And there are down because you'll get muckrakers and you'll get scandal mongers and you'll get people who are wrong. You'll get guys who write pieces like the one that you that you limbed in slate. You'll get the bad stuff. But if you want the good stuff, which is holding powerful people to account, you you cannot close the window completely on those other things. There's good practices that you can insist on inside your own news organization, all of those things. But Journalistic independence is dangerous. And when the government, people in the government want to subsidize journalism, or when rich people want to subsidize journalism, one of the things that I tell rich dudes, and I think it's only dudes, well, no, to rich people who want to go and in, get into the news business, even in an eleemosynary way, even in a way that says, oh, well, we're gonna run it as a charity. And what I tell them is, what are you going to do the first time that somebody publishes something that you hate, that you absolutely hate, and that you think is taking on the wrong target and is a mistake? You will be impossible for you. It will be next to impossible for you and the other benefactors to say, well, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's how it goes. Uh, I gave a bajillion dollars to get this news organization up and running, and now they're attacking the charity where my wife uh, spends all of her time and money. So cool, guys. So the one of the things that the thing that makes journalism so necessary, its independence and its ability to hold people accountable, right? That's those, those are the goods that it achieves tend to often be unpopular and they tend to often be unpopular with its patrons. And I just I point to this only to say the idea that at many journalism schools, many colleges and universities, but also in real life, the idea that this is like running a, you know, setting up a free health clinic or teaching people how to, you know, use American sign language or whatever. That's not what this is. This is a much messier, much more complicated, much more painful thing. And if you say you want the goods, you have to be able to accept that there will be some of those uncomfortable ills. Harumph. That's what I say. Harumph. Yeah. One thing student newspapers can do to enhance their independence is to become independent. Word. Um, you know, when I, I don't know what the situation is now, when I was a student at the University of Texas, our student newspaper was a private nonprofit corporation. So the the university didn't really have a whole lot of leverage over us. I mean, obviously there were some, some financial points. I mean, we are operated out of university owned building and that kind of thing, but you know, they couldn't just come in and say this, that, or the other. In fact, we went through a thing where we were suing our uh, board of directors, the the editorial staff, was because they wanted to just run an advertisement that we didn't want in the paper. Fight the power, brother. You got to fight the power. Okay. That brings us to Reader Mail. We're wrapping it up, folks. All right. This comes from Ted Rishford of Loveland, Ohio. Hi, Chris and Eliana. Love your podcast in informative but humorous ways. You look at the media publishing dumb things. (laughs) Thank you. Here's another example on a familiar theme. This comes from The Guardian. Tropical storms killing more Americans as climate crisis deepens study finds. And let's see. The original headline. Oh, I see. The This is where the error is embedded in the URL. And the URL tells us what the original headline was. Atlantic storms deadlier to people of color <laughs> make up the excess deaths. And- Thank you, Mr. Richford, for catching one of my themes. It's bad to be poor because rich people live longer, live more safely, live those things. And conflating race with poverty is a a pernicious and damaging trend in the media. Kevin, I'm sure you get to see these frequently, which is such and so, you know, black Americans hit hardest by this or non-white Americans hit hardest by that. And very often in my experience, if you just do, if you just did it by cla- income, you'd yeah. just be able to say, "Oh yeah, poor whites get really uh, get it in the choppers on this one too." Being poor is not as good as being middle class or rich. Yeah, although rich people tend to live on the waterfront. I mean, that is true. Have beachfront houses, but uh. you know, there's the old joke about you know how the major newspapers would play the end of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the New York Times would say world ends poor minorities hit hardest. The Wall Street Journal would say world ends. Dow Jones Industrial Average hit zero. And USA Today would say, world ends, sports, page six. Sports, page six. That's right. Okay. Hi, Eliana and Chris. This comes from Bill Albert of Pisgah Forest, North Carolina. I really enjoy your podcast and listen every week. Here's a serious question for you, Oh, I do read a lot, but seldom touch ink, mostly reading online. That's okay. While I am aware of the uncountable cases against Trump, many of them involve conspiracy to do something or whatever, having served on a jury many years ago. Thank you. Where the defendant was charged with nine conspiracy counts, including conspiracy to commit murder and conspiracy to kidnap. When the jury went into deliberations, the first thing we requested was the law defining what constituted conspiracy in Connecticut, which is also the name I believe of a thriller. At the time, it was two pages long, yet simple in principle. I have yet to discover any explanation of what makes an action or inaction a conspiracy. Can you enlighten me and the rest of us on what we miss? Love your podcast and do subscribe to The Dispatch. Uh, okay, Kevin, what's a conspiracy? Well, it does vary from state to state. I don't know what counts as a conspiracy, but usually it's an agreement between two or more people to undertake a course of action that involves a criminal act. Yeah, it's... and. The I covered the courts for a long time, and basically, conspiracy is what prosecutors use to say he knew this was going on, he knew that it was in furtherance of uh, illegal action. And even if the things that he did, he or she did, not all of them were strictly illegal, they knew that they were doing things to achieve an illegal outcome. Is do you buy that? Yeah, Sarah Isger had a a great explanation of this in the dispatch. i remembering it was Sarah. That, you know, there were some complaints about the, the Trump conspiracy stuff. And the 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 complaint was this essentially criminalizes ordinary things like making a phone call yes. or having a conversation with someone. And that's not the case, of course. It's that these ordinarily legal acts are part of showing that there was an attempt to do something, a coordinated illegal thing. Mm-hmm. So no, it's not illegal to make a phone call to someone. But if you're a you know, a hitman and I'm a mafia boss and I'm trying to set up a hit on someone I don't like, and I call you to talk about it, that's part of the story. So the crime isn't that I called you. The crime is that I called you in the course of conspiring to commit a murder. And this is like a felony murder that is in many states, which is if someone dies while you're doing something illegal, even if you did not intend to kill that person, you get charged with first-degree murder because it was a consequence of a crime you were committing. Or even if you're not the hitman, and and you're calling someone to tell them to go rub the guy out, if I make a phone call to distract the front desk so that the hitman can get into the building, I'm in on the conspiracy too. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the way conspiracy cases play out in a lot of states and at the federal level, and this will be interesting in in the context of the RICO uh, prosecution of Trump, is they essentially treat everyone who is a member of the conspiracy as criminally liable for everything the conspiracy does. Right. So you can be a couple of degrees removed if you're part of, say, a drug trafficking organization. You can be a few degrees of, of separation removed from an actual drug sale or murdering some rival drug trafficker and and still be held re- liable for the, for the homicide. And a lot of this, of course, points to the fact that Americans, and Mr. Alpert points out that the defendant was found guilty on all nine counts with 40 years in jail and then deportation. We take We, we take And I wrote about this in the dispatch about Elliot Ness and the untouchables. We take different views of bootstrapping by prosecutors, depending on whose ox is getting gored. Right. And if it's a if it's a murderous drug dealer, many jurors are going to say, yeah, whatever. Uh, Just tell tell me where to check the box. (laughs) Right. Tell me, tell me, tell me the thing that I need to say to you that he's guilty of so that he'll be convicted and taken off the streets when those same tools are applied to someone who you favor or have good feelings about, you're the, inner li- the inner civil libertarian emerges in almost anybody. Yeah. Okay, it's time for our favorite items of the week. And I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed this story. It's in the New York Times, and it even has a corny steyr headline, The Frothy Saga of the Jacuzzi Family, an immigrant Mm. story, an American dream, a machine that defined bourgeois sensuality. And I'm going to get your name wrong, and I am very sorry to the author, who is Saskia Solomon. I hope it's Saskia. But Ms. Solomon, you did a real bang up job with this long story about the Jacuzzi family, about hot tubs, about all of this stuff. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I love, which is you take an ordinary thing and you unpack it and you find all of the interesting things underneath it about American immigration, about culture, about family dynamics, about business, and, and did it in a, in a way that had one eyebrow lightly arched, but, but saw the people as real people and told the story and found all the stuff. And I just loved it. It was great. Kevin, what do you got? I think that there's, well, on this story, by the way, there's something about Italian names that make these stories work better. Yes. Oh, like, you know, Jacuzzi versus Jacuzzi is an interesting sounding court name. Yes. Like you have House of Gucci that came out a couple of years ago. Yes. If that firm had been exactly the same firm, it had been founded by a family named Smith, House of Smith would not have been a movie. That's right. And the Italian culture lends itself very well to family drama, right? The big big, passionate feelings and strong fa- familial connections. If this was a bunch of wasps, it would be it would be dry as a drain tub. Yeah. Strong feelings, you know, I don't approve of that. So. Okay. So, Tell us your favorite. So my story is actually a little bit more than a week old. So I'm, 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 I've been in the rules here a little bit, but it's in the British Spectator, as opposed to the American Spectator. And it's by Leon Mangasarian, which I'm probably also pronouncing wrongly, but I assume that's an Armenian last name. And it's about the recent surge in the far-right party in Germany called AFD, which is Alliance Alternative for Germany. And there's been a lot of commentary on on this from various places, but there's some actually interesting reporting in here, including issues that maybe you don't think about so much. So when you think about far-right parties... You know, often it's driven by immigration and particularly immigration from, from Muslim countries when you're talking about Europe. But one of the things these people in, in the former East Germany particularly are complaining about is the resurgence of wolves in, in Germany. And, you know, I like wolves being out there. I want the wild places to be full of wild things. But the thing about wolves is they don't stay out in the middle of nowhere. They like to be like where people are raising livestock and, yeah. and that sort of- thing. delicious, delicious livestock. Delicious, delicious livestock, and we've seen some of that in the United States too. But also, you know, the 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 current gov- government of Germany, which has the the Greens in it, wants to outlaw using wood for heating, which to a lot of us would sound like that's kind of like something you do as a hobby in your cabin or you have a place for the fireplace. But in a lot of again in the former East Germany, particularly rural areas, you have houses that are still built around wood burning stoves and heating your homes with wood in the winter is what people do not because it's quaint and picturesque and it's fun to sit around a fire but because otherwise they freeze to death yeah and you know we in, in the american context we see a lot of kind of social identity politics and culture war driven by the increasingly broad disconnect between urban america and rural america and it's interesting to see that this is also happening in in, in europe and particularly in germany so you know the people who are making the rules in in Berlin aren't thinking about. They're actually people who lose valuable assets to wolf attacks, mm. and there are people who actually hold villages of people who help heat their homes with wood still because the way that people live in the countryside is just so alien to them, and they know so little about it. If there were you know sort of more familiarity, I think this is certainly true in the American context between these often disconnected classes of people. Then there would be a more intelligent way to go about having these policy discussions and 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 dealing with the the underlying issues. And of course, wolves are kind of interesting that way because we are seeing similar problems in the United States, where you know again people like me who like to hunt and be out in the wilderness are glad the wolves are out there, but people who are trying to raise sheep, especially in some parts of the country, are are, are really having trouble with it. The uh, this is a great piece and it points to the insufficiency of race as explaining everything, right? The unit, the unified theory of of politics as all being racial misses out on things like wolves and wood stoves and all of that stuff. Thank you for sharing it with us. And Kevin, I I cannot thank you enough for doing this. This has been even better than I could have hoped. And I had high expectations coming in. Uh, Truly, you are a, a wretch among wretches and I really am obliged to you for doing this. Well, thanks so much. It was fun. Okay. And that's the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by the Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.